This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got the business stories behind Stocks on a Move. I'm Corey Johnson. Today, August 16th, brings us episode 75. Well, just ahead, how a struggling digital payments company plans to make its mark in the land of the unbanked Latin America. Plus, Sonos wins a big ruling against Google. Don't believe what you read. The fight might not be over. And the inside story at one of the nation's biggest suppliers to home builders. We'll have an exclusive interview with Builders First Source CEO, David Flitman. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. ERA's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And you can listen to The Drill on any of your favorite podcast platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, TuneIn, Audible, Amazon. But hit that subscribe button to make sure you catch every show. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We've got the business stories behind Stocks on the Move. And we've got the three most important business developments of the day with executive producer Isaac Webster. Isaac? Hey, Corey. Let's start with Tesla. Tesla's autopilot system is being investigated by regulators. The National Highway Transportation Safety Administration says it it has identified 11 crashes since early 2018 in which a Tesla vehicle that had been using autopilot struck one or more vehicles involved in an emergency response situation. The four of those crashes being probed happened this year and mostly took, most took place after dark. All in all, the NHTCA is studying the autopilot system in some 765,000 Tesla vehicles from the 2014 through 2021 model years. Such investigations can but don't always lead to recalls. And it should be noted that advanced driver assistance systems like this in Tesla aren't tightly regulated here in the U.S., Yeah, I mean, they've been talking about fully self-driving at Tesla for a long time, and they don't offer fully self-driving, but I'm not sure all the passengers and all the, actually all the passengers, all the drivers get the message. Um, uh, You know, uh, let's let's hope that their technology is not leading to these crashes because some of them are horrific to watch, not least of which because those batteries then can sometimes burn uh, and are hard for firefighters to put out. It's also worth noting, I mean, have you seen any of these videos, Isaac, of people testing out the self-driving features to try to make turns and stuff, and the car wants to lurch into traffic even when there's no accident. It's kind of terrifying to watch. I have, I have. I mean, you know, listen, it's new technology, right? So it's just, it is frightening to watch those videos. Uh, let's, <laughs> I, have let's, to, I have to close my eyes. Let's just hope no one's, uh, that this isn't the fault of Tesla and that this isn't the fault of um, uh, the technology that, that a lot of people pinned a lot of hopes on. Right. All right. Next, let's get to T-Mobile. Data on some of T-Mobile's more than 100 million subscribers were found for sale on the web. The company says it's now investigating the theft. Now, this purported data breach for, was first reported by Vice's motherboard tech news website 
It said, and it's said to cover customer names, addresses, social security numbers, and driver's license details. The T-Mobile hasn't commented on a potential cause of this data leak. Motherboard? Motherboard. That's, that's right. That's the thing? Yeah, that's the name of the, their, their, tech, their tech news website. Motherboard. Didn't know that was a thing. Now you do. The more you know, Corey. All right, finally, let's get to Madonna. Today is Madonna what? 60. Yeah. Do you like Madonna? This is a business story? Why don't you listen and learn? How about that? Oh, man. Today is Madonna's 63rd birthday. And to celebrate, Madonna and her original music label, Warner Music Group, are teaming up again in a deal that spans her entire recorded music catalog and will include reissued albums and new deluxe editions curated by Madonna over the next few years. This agreement will start in 2022 on the 40th anniversary of her debut album. Madonna began her mainstream career with Warner, but in 2007, she joined concert promotion giant Live Nation and a deal that merged music recording and touring. All in all, this agreement with Warner and Madonna spans 17 studio albums, includes singles, soundtrack recordings, live albums, and compilations. A lot I wonder of money what, here. Uh, yeah, uh, she, she is indeed a big business. I'll give you that. I wonder what John Jellybean Benitez is thinking now. We'll see. Wow, that's a, you see, you know, you know Madonna. Uh, I, I go back. I, I took the wrong side of that feud. I was on the Jellybean side. Why? Because I knew him and I didn't really know Madonna. Well, and I, didn't I wouldn't know. bet against Madonna. I wasn't, a, I wasn't a big Sean Penn fan then. Now I'm all in on Sean yeah. Penn. He changed it for you. All right. Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Let's start with Paysafe. Paysafe. I've never heard of Paysafe. Paysafe trades under PSFE. Shares fell 15% today and they've fallen over 42% since, since the company went public. So tell me about Paysafe. Well, it was public for the second time, important. Ah. So PaySafe was public once upon a time, got taken out by private equity, then got spun up into a SPAC recently and came out with vast predictions of, of all the great things that they were going to do as a public company. Corey, I want to be spun up into a SPAC. Every time we say this, I'm like, you know what? Wouldn't that be fun? I, I just want to be spun up into a SPAC. No, I think that sounds uncomfortable. I think it sounds, sounds like a fun ride. It sounds sounds conflicting. It sounds like it'd be, <laughs> it does like, sound it, conflicting. It might involve uh, might involve uh, duct tape. I'm not sure. In any case, uh, this spec had all kinds of promises about future growth in the fintech payment space, but almost right out of the gate, they're kind of changing their predictions about their growth, and they went out and did a big acquisition. Um, PaySafe uh, is you know kind of lacking growth. They they were focused on payments in iGaming. But they just reported underwhelming results this morning, uh, Q2 results with revenue of $384 million, but up just 13% year over year, only slightly better than the previous quarter, which is, I think, about 12%. But they also announced this big acquisition in the world of open banking. So, you know, here in the U.S. or in Europe, we kind of take a lot of um, uh, fintech products where they can go in and look at our our bank accounts or go and look at how we spend our money or go in and move money from account to account. We take it for granted. But uh, in Latin America, that's not the case. 85% of all transactions in Latin America are cash. Nearly half the population is lacking a bank account. So I got, I got to say, I found that so mind blowing. I knew that, I knew that Africa was behind the curve on banking, but I didn't realize South America was so. Oh, most of the world, Isaac. I mean, except for the Europe and the U.S., most of the world is unbanked. Wow. And, uh, and it, a lot of the U.S. is unbanked, too. Um, but it's, it's something I became very aware of when I worked at Ripple and I was working on a lot of these issues about moving money across borders and how people use money and, and, and move money across borders. 
And there are a lot of, I'm sure if you know people who live overseas, the odds are they've actually got a regular relationship with their money exchange agent in the same way the rest of us might with a barber or something. Mm -hmm. Not not you, Isaac, because I don't think you've cut your hair this year. No. Like I've had it cut once since the pandemic started. Is it really true? Actually twice, but you know. Oh, jeez. Okay. In any case, um, uh, the, this, uh, this, this, this movement towards open banking where bank accounts in Latin America will not only happen in the first place, but also will have similar uh, data systems that you can apply other um, applications onto and other services onto um, is it's a hopeful area for growth. Um, the middle class in Latin America has grown by 50% in the last decade. Uh, smartphone adoption is a really big part of this. And there are a lot of um, devices that people use to move money around with their smartphones where they never touch a bank. So this acquisition by Paysafe is meant to give them some opportunities um, in Latin America, not least of which in Brazil, Mexico, Peru, Colombia, and Chile. Here is the CEO, Philip McHugh. Um, it gives us presence in 19 markets, including 11 Latin America markets. Uh, uh, you know, principal markets include Brazil, Mexico, Peru, Colombia, and Chile uh, in terms of markets of note. Over 300 merchants, and most importantly, 90% bank coverage. So these businesses are predominantly open banking with some e-cash in them. Uh, and with a single integration, you can access 90% of the networks for um, for open banking solutions. So that, that's kind of a uh, kind of a snapshot of the of the deals. Uh, what, what do we like about the business, Dan? One, look, on a standalone basis, these are great businesses. They're very, very high growth businesses. Uh, they're very successful with a very high demand APM and open banking uh, in Latin America. Um, and we see these as big trends. We see open banking as a major trend. We see e-cash as a growing demand in Latin America, and we love the bank coverage. So, you know, on a standalone snapshot, we really like it. So they paid a lot of money for it. They really like it. We'll see if it brings them some better than uh, 12% year-over-year growth, though, because that's certainly what the investors expected when this company came public. Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's look at Sonos. Some people are probably listening to this right now on their Sonos devices. Do you want to go ahead and plug that again? I think they should listen to do another. I listen to the show on my Sonos uh, when I'm at uh, You don't say. You haven't told me that before. I haven't told you that before. No, you have told me that before over and over again. All right. Sonos trades under Sono, S-O-N-O. We have fun. We have fun. S-O-N-O, shares rose 4% today. They've gained 175% in a year. Go Sonos. Tell me yeah, what's going Sonos. The, the company's doing quite well. Um, yeah. And uh, there was some hope that they would do even better if they could license their products. So um, they sued Google and they suggested that some of Google's next uh, speakers, Nest speakers, I should say, mm-hmm. were uh, infringing on patents. And indeed, the U.S. International Trade Commission, one of the judges there, Charles Bullock, Mm-hmm. did indeed Friday, late Friday, decide that Google had infringed on five patents, specifically those relating to synchronizing audio, adjusting volume, and connecting to Wi-Fi. Now, the judge's full ruling is expected in the coming days. Um, the decision could help Sonos get a lot more in terms of licensing revenues. Google's refused to do any deal with them. Now they might be compelled to do so. Um, there's, of course, other competition from Amazon and other speaker makers, and Sonos has maintained that their patents would apply there, and indeed that lots more of their patents would apply against Google. They just wanted to go against the most obvious ones. That's their take on it. Right. The analysts uh, who look at this think that Sonos could get 50 million bucks a year 
annually. Now, that's just a drop in the bucket of their revenues. But when you think about license revenues, this is important. License revenues don't cost anything. What, a couple lawyers to send some paperwork? Right. They flow right to the bottom line. So $50 million is a drop in the bucket of the, I think it's like $1.6 billion that the company earns mm-hmm. uh, in a given year. But they had $186 million in the last year for profits. If it was $50 million bucks a year, on top of the $186 million they're already making, that'd be a substantial increase in the profits. And that would be just from Google. So this is seen as a big positive. I think that, you know, I read some of the stories about this uh, after the ruling. They were comparing it to Sonos Revenues. And it just shows me those business writers don't understand business. That this is this is this goes right to the bottom line. It is a substantial improvement could be mm-hmm. to their profits. And I say could be, because the ITC's rulings don't always get enforced. There was a big one a few years ago oh. where Qualcomm was found to be infringed upon by Apple. And it would have required, among other things, a lot of old iPhones to come off the market and to stop the shipment of iPhones to the US. Uh-huh. And President Obama decided, I'm not doing that. We're just not going to enforce this ITC decision. It's in the best interest of the, it's in the best public interest. So in the last conference call, Sonos um, chief legal officer, Eddie Lazarus, was asked about that president precedent if the president chose not to enforce the ban on these products and indeed Google, uh, allowing Google to continue to ship them. Uh I, I think that if we obtain an importation ban at the ITC, it's upheld by the full commission uh, that uh, I would expect uh, that uh, the administration, uh, I think it's delegated to the USTR representative, uh, will sign that order uh, and it will go into effect. Um, this, uh, the, the public interest calculation uh, in the Qualcomm case is very different than the calculation here. Uh, and uh, this is a case where a uh, very large company is infringing uh, on the uh, uh, the inventions uh, of a much smaller innovative company, uh, and there's no reason to think that the uh, the administration wouldn't follow through on the ruling of the ITC. So yes, this does have to go before this could go before the full ITC board if Google chose to you know, make that happen. And uh, while the board almost always follows what their judges say to do, then it goes the administration, or maybe after 60 days, the administration to see if they want to actually enforce it. So it's not over yet, but it's looking better for Sonos. Corey, what is your next drill down? Well, I think the company is pronounced NIU. It's N-I-U, NIU Technologies. Well, NIU Technologies trades under NIU. Shares rose 4% today, and they've gained 9% over the past 12 months. Talk to me about NIU. Yeah, I think we can say it in a more annoying fashion, right? NIU. Something like that. Yeah. NIU. The sound effect. It's like 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 the sword fights in uh, Star Wars. In any case, new technologies. uh, Revenues reported this morning of $146 million in the quarter. That's up 47% year over year. Now, these guys sell electric scooters. And they sell a lot of electric scooters in China. They sold 252,998. I'm going to call that a quarter of a million electric scooters in the most recent quarter. That's Mm. 58% more than the previous year. Mm-hmm. In China alone, 246,000 of them, so only about 4,000 internationally. But uh, the, uh, or I should say more like 7,000 internationally, that was about 35%. So their growth internationally is much slower than it is in China. And one of the reasons they said it could have been better is something we've been talking a lot about on the Drill Down podcast, shipping costs. Here's mm-hmm. uh, the CEO, Yan Li, talking about this. And I think it's super interesting because this could, this could apply 
to just about any country, company under the sun. But these guys specifically talking about their inability to sell internationally because their cost per unit has gone up so much. Here is Yan Li. As international shipment, I mean, I think to be honest, yes, we do we do observe a, a uh, right now we, we see a, uh, a obstacle in two two things. One is actually shortage of the uh, international shipping uh, containers. And second is actually even when you're able to book the containers, the per container cost used to be six used to be six thousand dollars, and now it's actually raised up as high as eighteen thousand dollars. So it's actually three x of what we observed in the past. And on per container basis, we used to be able to get roughly about you know forty scooters per container. So that's actually you talk about it's almost about hundred fifty dollars into my shipping cost. Now, now instead of $150, it become a $450 uh, per unit shipping cost. I think this is actually um, the the issue we have observed uh, for the past two quarters, uh, and where and those are the issues because some of our our you know international orders we have a backlog of almost 4,000 units were not able to ship in Q2 because of lack of container and because of there's a high shipping cost where our distributors or importers uh, in, in Europe and the United States sort of are patching, are betting, waiting for the shipping cost to decline a bit uh, before to ship more. So super interesting, right? They're, they're seeing a $300 per bicycle increase in cost because of the rising in ship, just the cost of a container wow. and getting it to the U.S. or Europe. I would love to have him on with Hamish from Starbolt Carriers. I think that'd be a very interesting. You think we should put the bikes in the bottom of the of the things that we're carrying uh, iron ore and? Yeah, why not? Gypsum. Yeah, aren't bikes made of metal, iron, steel? Yeah, but they don't. Okay, <laughs> but Starbolt container doesn't do any containers. It'd be a very interesting conversation. Okay. You know, it's a very interesting conversation. The one no. we are about to have with Builders yes. First Source CEO David Flipman, uh, fascinating business in home building products. Uh, you'll get some insight into what's really going on in this booming industry of construction for individual homes. Uh, fascinating stuff. But first, a word from our sponsors. Sponsors like Indeed. The drill down is brought to you by Indeed. Now, here's an ex- existential question for every business. When you're hiring, how do you know who's really best for the role? We'll save time and screen for quality candidates with the skills you need with Indeed assessments. When hiring gets hard, you need Indeed, the job site that makes hiring incredibly simple. Just attract, interview, and hire. In fact, with Indeed, you can do all of your hiring in one place, even interviewing. Don't just hope your perfect candidate finds you. Indeed's hiring tools help you cut through the noise to hire faster and smarter. Indeed, Indeed's instant match provides you with a list of quality candidates who are on Indeed the moment you post a sponsored job. With Indeed Assessments, choose from 135 skill sets. Help you make sure you're finding applications from people with the skills you need. According to Talent Nest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all the other job sites combined. So join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And for our listeners, get started right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash drilldown. That's right, a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash drill down. I tried to say it, Indeed.com slash drill down. Offer valid through September 30. Terms and conditions apply. And remember, you can join the drill down on Twitter and Instagram at drill down pod. And check out our website, bizpod.net. Let us know what stocks we should be drilling down on. 
All right, welcome back to The Drill Down. We're joined right now by Dave Flitman. He's the CEO of Builders First Source, uh, a really uh, interesting company, um, one that, Dave, I hold uh, uh, dear to my heart only because I once built a house. Um, I didn't actually do most of the work, but I did a little bit of all the work. And, you know, the building a home, a custom home, is such a monumental effort. I think when we started the project, the builder said to me, you're going to make about thirty to 35,000 individual decisions over the course of the next year. Don't worry, we got you. We're going to hold your hand. So it's a monumental effort. Yes, it, it, it is indeed. Um, uh, it, it is a leading cause of divorce. So I, I asked the builder when we were finishing the house, said, how many of the couples do you work with that end up getting divorced uh, after the project? He's like, all of them. <laughs> Our job is to try to make that a little bit easier for both the home builder and the, and the uh, well, sure enough, that's why that's why my house went, but uh, and that's where my house went. But talk to me about your business. What is it that you guys do? How do you guys make money? Sure. So we're we are the largest um, building materials supplier in the country, um, and including in that building products, we we supply prefabricated components, uh, value added services, and millwork to the professional building industry. So about three quarters of our business is uh, linked directly to single family home building. And we've got about another 10 or 12 percent that uh, is linked to remodeling. And uh, also the remainder is um, associated with multifamily construction in the country. So new home construction in one way, shape or form is the overwhelming majority of, uh, of what we do. But importantly, you know, we've got a really strong footprint. The company was formed, Corey, uh, reconstituted, I should say, back in January uh, from a merger the right. combining Builders First Source and BMC. And I used to run the legacy BMC company. And, but right now we're in 39 states, um, and importantly, you know, we're in 47 of the top 50 and 84 of the top 100 MSAs in the country. So we've yeah, got a really good guys say in your, in your financial filings that 91% of all housing permits are in those MSAs. Yeah, exactly. So I, I love our footprint where if there's new home construction going on in the country, uh, we've got a pretty good pulse on that. Yeah, and 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 there is, and I don't, and I don't, you know, I think that you guys get lumped into the macro story, which I want to talk about, but I really want to talk about your business. But let's start with the macro story. There is an enormous amount of construction going on in the housing sector right now um, in the U.S. Um, as a result of what? Well, absolutely, and it's it's really been a result of a, a number of factors. So uh, if you go back, I'll take you back a little history lesson that everyone will recall. Um, back with the great financial crisis, you know, home building really led the downturn. And what we've sure. seen over the last 12 to 15 years since that happened is a, is a huge underbuilt of new home construction in this country. While at the same time, there's been a demographic shift and not the least of which is 82 million millennials now in the home buying market that didn't exist back in 2007. Yeah, and, 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 so, and they were also late to buy homes, right? It looked at what there was a question out there, were they ever gonna buy homes? Were they permanently scarred by the housing crisis of 2008? Were they gonna be living in Airbnbs and renting forever and all of a sudden they're buying houses? And they, and they decided to have kids and maybe get a dog and thought maybe a piece of piece of grass would be nice and a little, little spot for the kids to play in. And so we've seen them enter the market in the past several years in a big way. And I think, you know, so the underlying demand demographics have shifted significantly and that demand is there. But then, you know, a year and a half ago when COVID hit and, uh, you know, people, two real factors there, Corey, people determined that they really could live just about anywhere. And uh, it really spurred an acceleration to new home construction as people thought about where do I really want to 
you know, call home. And at the same time, the people who weren't looking for a new home decided maybe this is a good time to remodel a kitchen or maybe I need an office to work from home. And so not only was single family home construction accelerated as a result of the pandemic, but uh, remodeling efforts as well and for the particularly for the DIY you know, folks at home. And, and so, well, and well, the, and, and interest rates. Well, some interest rates have ticked up. Mortgage rates have actually stayed really just extraordinarily low, which makes housing have. as affordable as ever. Exactly, and you know, I think we're bouncing around three percent on a thirty-year mortgage. You know, it was a couple of weeks ago it was below two point eight percent. So, yeah. to your point, we're bouncing off of all-time lows on interest rates now, and so you've got that combined demand picture that I just spoke about. You know, coupled with interest rates at historic lows or very close to that. Uh, it's been a real boom for the industry here for the past couple of years. So that's the industry. Let's talk about your business. I want to sure. give you all the Love credit or all the blame. That's what we do here. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, in your case, you know, where does that start to show up? Where do you first see those trends? Because that kind of boom can be really hard to handle for a business. And, yeah, it's been quite challenging. And I get, you know, we've got 27,000 team members across those 39 states that I spoke about. And they've been quite busy over the last couple of years. They've done a tremendous job satisfying the needs of our customers. But uh, we really saw it broadly. You know, I, I couldn't necessarily point to one geography that kind of led the way. Um, you know, we've seen that demand broadly across the country accelerate across our footprint. And importantly, you know, we, we work really hard every day to solve our customers' problems. And, you know, if you take the combined impact of the acceleration of demand and the significant skilled labor challenges that, that this country really faces, but importantly, that's impinged on the home building industry since that sure. financial crisis that I spoke about when a lot of the skilled labor left and went to other, uh, other spots in the economy. And importantly, what we do, Corey, to help, help with that is, um, is we've got great offerings and components. And so when I, when I talk about components, we are kind of unique in our footprint because we manufacture, we're not only a distributor of building materials, but we manufacture roof truss systems, flooring systems, and importantly, what we call a ready frame, which is the wall system. You know, we've got about 700 designers spread all across the country. So we'll take a blueprint from the uh, from the home builders. We'll convert that into a structural design of the home. And if you imagine, you know, in large part, home building really hasn't changed in this country since 1850. Uh, you send lumber to a job site, you measure, you cut it, and you install it at the job site. But what we've been able to do because of the demand picture and the labor challenges and productivity and efficiency needs of our customers, We've taken a lot of that manufacturing offsite. So we will deliver these, these systems uh, to the locations that actually make the job site easier to manage. You actually need less skilled labor to get the job done. And the job sites are a lot less congested and so they're much safer than they historically have been. And so are fewer homes stick built as, as I know the, the phrase you guys like, which is where in your industry, yeah. which is essentially it's a custom design. It's it's put up some two by fours or whatever it is, frame it out and fill it in. Yeah, we've seen a great adoption of, of these components, uh, which which means by definition less stick stick framing that's actually happening on uh, on the homes. And importantly, you know what we've seen is is that has accelerated. In our most recent quarter, we reported a fifty eight percent organic growth in our components business across wow. the country. That's opposite single family homes. Uh, starts, which was up just under 42%. So we are outpacing the market with, with these unique and innovative solutions. And it's because of what we just said, you know, there's less skilled labor, 
Uh, the challenges are there, and the demand has never, never been greater. And so we're excited about it, and we've got a long runway of growth because, you know, as, as happy as I am and pleased as, as we've been about that growth, there's still a tremendous opportunity to penetrate the market. You know, we, we talked about, just a minute ago, we talked about uh, the millennials in the market. And while they are buying homes, they're buying smaller footprint homes, you know, um, maybe in the 14 to 2,000 square foot Interesting. area. And that really lends itself to these reproducible structural designs that I spoke about. And I, I think that's driving a lot of our outpaced growth in these component areas. Uh, the home builders have really migrated to it. Have the materials changed a lot in the last 10 or 20 years? Uh, for the for the home construction, the the, uh, the bones of the home, if you will, you know, it's still in large part uh, lumber, lumber related, yeah. uh, oriented strand board, you know, OSB they call it for floor systems and, and the wall sheeting systems has gained great adoption over the past ten to fifteen years. Uh, but again, it's it's based on on wood or wood products uh, to a large extent around single family home construction. You had a really weird dynamic uh, middle of this year where you just, or I should say, about three or four months ago, where the price of lumber just absolutely skyrocketed and then absolutely plummeted. What do you guys yeah. do to mitigate that? Yeah, so it was a challenging time because along with the, uh, you know, the demand increase that I spoke about, which really started the last summer, you know, that single family home construction and the DIY effort, uh, supply became very tight. And that's why we saw lumber prices start to accelerate really about this time last year. And by the time the first part of the year got here, it was really rampant. Lumber features peaked about $1,600 per thousand board feet back in the May, mid-May kind of time frame. And as of last week, we're right back uh, on top of historical lumber prices. And so that just shows you how far it went, which is about $400 per thousand. So we're within earshot of those numbers now. That just shows you how dramatic that spike was and how quickly you know it came back down as some of the DIY work alleviated a little bit of capacity has come back online. But the challenge for us, specifically to your question, was not so much managing through the price situation, which was a challenge for our folks every day, but it was more securing the supply for this, um, you know, outpaced demand that we saw. And given our footprint, you know, we are the largest building materials supplier in the country. Uh, we, we fared quite well and much better than a lot of our competitors in actually getting the volume of wood-based products that we needed for our customers. I normally, uh, when I look at uh, companies, I don't like to give them too much credit for adjusted numbers or adjusted, you know, EBITDA numbers for our net profit margins. But I think because of the big merger that you did, the operating profit margin maybe isn't the perfect numbers to look at, but the EBITDA margins, uh, earning before income tax, appreciation, amortization, you've had just fantastic progress there. You've gone from about a 6.9% EBITDA margin, which isn't half bad, back in uh, September of 2018, to nearly 15% uh, in the most recent quarter, uh, especially in a really big jump in the last uh, six or nine months. To what do you attribute that uh, great increase in, in margin, the EBITDA margin? Well, I think it's uh, it's a couple of things. One is the, just the tightness in demand. And we, you know, lumber gets all the headlines in the Wall Street Journal, but just about every building material has increased significantly. You know, there's also been significant challenges in getting things like windows and doors to finish homes. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we hear a lot of our customers say that they can't get appliances to this I was, day. I was going to throw appliances in there too. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's everywhere. Hardware, you know, for kitchen cabinets and doors. Uh, it's just about everything. I, heard, I read something about that, that hinges. It's really hard it to is. get the right door hinge right now. 
It is. And again, it, it all comes back, Corey, to just that uplift in demand that we've seen that really impinged on the entire supply chain all at once. And so, you know, that's been a tailwind to our business. But importantly, you know, what I spoke about earlier, the great capabilities that we have in structured components, our, our manufactured areas of the business, and also we have a tremendous millwork business all across the country. Some of that's custom millwork, but also, you know, we pre-hang doors and windows. Again, just to make that whole building process more efficient for our customers. And well, you guys will actually go, you, you guys will <clears throat> deliver a wall with the window already in it? We can do that, yes. We do panels uh, already pre-installed. <clears throat> Excuse me, that happens in, in a limited number of markets across the country. But yes, we do have that capability as well. Again, it's all aimed at relieving the job site from congestion and productivity challenges and, and helping to deal with the skilled labor challenge the industry faces. And the suggestion is you that's allowed you to take price, increase your it prices. Has, it has because all of our suppliers have taken price in a big way just because there just has not been enough material to satisfy the demand. And I should, I should ask about shipping. I'm surprised you haven't brought it up yet, but the, the shipping constraints that we've heard, whether it's the price of containers going from hundreds of dollars to $25,000 or a limited supply of all sorts of things, not least of which semiconductors, it seems to have slowed down. Um, a lot of economic growth we might have otherwise had. Um, are you seeing that in your business, and where are you seeing that most acutely? Well, some of the some of the uh, smaller product categories, like we, we spoke about hardware, a lot of that tends to be imported uh, at various times. You know, we get a lot of lumber, thankfully domestically, and so the, those sort of challenges have haven't presented themselves uh, to that extent. But I will tell you, you know, we're not immune either from the lumber, or, excuse me, from the labor challenges. You know, our ability to retain employees uh, has never been more of a challenge than it has been in the last couple of years. Uh, drivers in particular, you know, across our footprint, we've got something like 2,400 drivers every day delivering product across these 40 states to our customers. So we're not immune from any of that. You know, labor inflation has been real for us as well. And just keeping high quality people uh, surf servicing our customers every day has been a real challenge for us. I'd imagine you have to get a lot of raises in the last year. Yeah, we have. You know, uh, inflation has been real, not only on the product, but also on the labor. Uh, but we've done a great job. You know, I, I think uh, our, our teams have come together quite well here across the country. You know, I think part of it has been just a great cultural fit here between the two organizations. They put the customer in the center of, of everything that they do and, uh, and come to work every day. 27,000 people really trying to service our customers better than they did the day before. So it's been really tremendous. Yeah. How do you, how do you do that when you when you're merging a company, you're dealing with sort of entry level pay is going up, but I would imagine that means all the managers don't want to see the people that work for them getting paid a lot more than they are more than this. So they, you've kind of got to raise salaries, I would imagine across the board, including with the company just acquired. Yeah, we have, you know, we, uh, we, we stepped back when we brought the two organizations and spent a lot of time in the first quarter, sifting through the talent of both companies and making sure we were putting the best team on the field and then making sure that we were compensating them well and uh, making sure this is a great place that they want to be. Well, a fascinating company uh, at a fascinating time for the home building business, Dave Flipman, is the CEO of Builders First Source. Uh, when we come back with the drill down, we're going to have the drill down bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. We're going to look back to uh, the biggest year in housing ever. It's not this year and it's not last year. We're going to look at that biggest year and how much bigger it was, that number, when the drill down continues. The drill down is brought to you by ERA, a one-stop equity platform 
where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. Era's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And we hope you listen to the drill down every day. Use your smart speaker. Whether it's legal or not, you can still use a Google smart speaker or your Sonos or your Alexa. Just turn to that smart speaker and ask it to play the Drill Down podcast and you'll hear our very latest show. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at Drill Down Pod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. We're back with the drill down. We've got the drill down bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. The biggest year ever. That's not the number. The biggest year ever in the residential housing uh, market, single family residential construction, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, was 2006. So last year, uh, the market was great, as we just heard, doing $365 billion in construction. Well, in 2006, it was $413.2 billion. Here's your drill down bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. $413.2 billion in 2006, Isaac. So suggest to us that perhaps the housing market uh, can handle a lot more construction than it is handling right now. I hope it can. When was your house built? Your lovely home. Uh, my home was built in 2017. Yeah, it's, it's No, it's I'm lovely. sorry, 2016, 2016. Thank um, you. And, you. and I think that's probably when I was there, right, after you moved in. Um, I've yeah, you, you came to visit right after we moved in. We were the first owners, all that. Yeah. yeah. Lovely. Thank you. My house was built in the 30s, and it's, and it's insulated Wait, the like one it was built in the 30s. Uh, you mean the one that you built by yourself? No, the one back that in I'm the in 30s? now. The oh, one that I'm in now. I did not build it in the 30s. I'm old. I'm not that old. <laughs> all right. Enough of this. This has been the Drill Down Podcast. I'm Corey Johnson. We really do appreciate your time. Isaac Webster's is our executive producer. Ben Wilson is our editor extraordinaire of the Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network.